Good morning. Good to get to worship with you today. If you're new here, my name is Fred. I'm one of the pastors. I'll be preaching today, and I want to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. We are uh, continuing through the book of Revelation here. We're going to be in this book until Christmas time, and so uh, just going to be working our way. We're not going to hit every passage. We're not going to take that much time, but we are going to do, uh, I think, a significant overview of the book and dig into certain topics. And so uh, when you get to Revelation chapter two, we encounter the letters to the seven churches. And we're gonna actually look at the first letter today and we'll look at the seventh and final letter next week uh, before moving on from this section. But hopefully that gave you a chance to find Revelation chapter two. I wanna read today verses one through seven and then we'll pray after reading the word. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And to to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Would you pray with me as we consider this passage together? Father, it is our desire to have that future with you, to eat from the tree of life in the paradise for which you are, which you are preparing for those who have come to Jesus Christ in need of a savior and received his sacrifice on their behalf. Today, we, we desire to experience the goodness of that gospel. We desire to experience the hope of eternity with you. And so I pray that we would take heed to these words. May we, may we hear both the comfort and the challenge of this passage today. And may we respond with open minds and open hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So these seven churches uh, are, are in seven different cities in uh, Asia Minor, and these letters were written in the order that you would likely travel to those cities if you were, uh, if you were to go and, and make kind of a circuit of the churches that, that John is writing to here. And it begins with Ephesus. Ephesus is the first city that you would come to if you were to head out on this journey with John. And um, those cities lie on a major, major uh, trade route and major roads throughout the Roman Empire. And so the intention here is basically to reach the church as a whole. We know um, 
things are a little bit differently today because communication's been greatly facilitated by things like the internet and cell phones and all of that kind of stuff. But if you rewind just a few years and think about human history, uh, if you wanted to get a particular message out worldwide or to a large group of people, you would probably start in the major cities through which a lot of people traveled, and you would expect that the word would travel from there into the more rural parts or the more isolated parts of the world. And, and so is the strategy of the book of Revelation. Take this message to the seven churches, but not just to the seven churches, Let it go from those seven churches to all Christians everywhere, both in the first century and, of course, still today. And so these messages, these letters to the seven churches are really, they're letters to us as well. They are letters that have have a relative message to what we are going through today. There are some, you know, we talked the first week about the different views of, of reading and interpreting Revelation and some would take these seven churches, you know, you might remember the historicist view who sees that the book of Revelation is describing things that have happened over the last 2,000 years until the time of Christ, looking forward. And, and the, some historicists, not all, would take these seven letters and say, these are seven ages of the church. So the, the letter to the Ephesian church represents the early church and so on and so forth. And that has a little bit of merit, but it's, I think, largely discredited by the fact that they don't perfectly line up with church history. And so I think we're better off viewing these seven letters as a message to the church as a whole. You're gonna see in each of these letters, there are things that you and I could be commended for as Christians today, and there are things in each of these letters that you and I need to be warned about or warned against. Most of these letters follow the same pattern. There's a commendation for something that the church is doing well before there is a rebuke for something that the church is not doing well. We saw that right here in this letter to the Ephesian church. There are two exceptions. Those two ex- exceptions are, to the, are, are the letters written to the churches that were facing persecution. I find it interesting that Jesus has no rebuke for the church that is going through persecution, but only encouragement. Nonetheless, we want to look at this today and we want to say, how can we, how can we as, as Christians today in the 21st century in Western Pennsylvania, what do, we, what do we gain from this? What do we learn from this? I think there are several things that we can note here that will be extremely helpful to us today. Let's look at them together. If you have the handout in front of you, we're going to fill in some of the, some of the blanks that you see there on the back of the handout as you take notes. The first point on the handout is this. Jesus is intimately involved in his church. Jesus is intimately involved in his church. Jesus and the church are really, are are, are so closely united that there's no way to separate Jesus from the church. We'll talk about, I'll explain that in a little bit. Let me read the text. The text is verse one, which says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, thus says the one 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You may remember from last week at the end of chapter one, this is one of the few places where a vision is given and then immediately defined or described for us. We see this image in chapter one of Jesus walking among these seven golden lampstands. And on each of those golden lampstands is the, the, the light that is burning. And we are told, we are told that that is Jesus among his churches. And here we come back to this idea in chapter two and we, we find out that Jesus not only has these seven stars, these seven churches in his right hand, but I like the, I like the way the net, the net version of the Bible translates, holds, says he has a firm grasp. Jesus holds tightly to his church. He holds tightly to his people as he walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Old Testament tabernacle imagery. The priest would tend to the lampstands in, uh, in the tabernacle of God. And we, hear, we see here this image of Jesus tending to his church. We see Jesus going amongst and, and going about his churches and he's tending to them. He is ensuring their survival. He is, he is warning them of where they have gone off track, but he is encouraging them that he is with them. The church today needs to be reminded that Jesus is among us. We are his church. As we, as the church, and I mean the church global, I mean Christians worldwide, as, as the church goes about our business of deciding how to respond to the many challenges that, that come upon us in this world and how are we gonna respond to social issues? How are we gonna respond to political issues? What about theological issues? We need to be reminded this is Jesus's church and we are here to do what he wants us to do. We are not to determine the, the direction of his church we are to look to him who has determined the direction of his church and we are to follow his leadership. We are to follow in his footsteps. The fact that Jesus is intimately involved in his church is, is described in many ways throughout the New Testament. We are described in certain of Paul's letters as the body of Christ. And Paul goes even as far to say that each of us as individual members of the church make up various parts of Jesus's body. And he uses the physical bodies that you and I have as an example or as an illustration. And he says, look, it's, it's, it's to the detriment of the body to have one part missing or to have one part not functioning as well as the others. And he says, what good is it if the whole body is an ear? <laughs> well, that'd look pretty weird, but beyond that, functionally speaking, the body would not be nearly as effective. Or what good it is if the body is just an eye? No, we have various parts to our bodies. We have arms, legs, hands, 
toes and fingers and we have mouths. We have different, different parts that function in different ways to make the whole body work together. And that's an image of the church. We as the, as the church, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we are his body. And we do his work. And we, and, and, and we are united with him. Jesus is the head, the Bible tells us, his people, his, his believers, his followers, the church is the body. That is a very, it doesn't get more intimate than that in the sense that we are, you cannot, there's no, I don't want to get too graphic. It's not very good to have a body without a head. <laughs> it's, it's, the two are, 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 are connected in such a strong way that the body will cease to live without the head. We need Jesus, and yet he has so intricately and intimately involved himself with us that we are his body. That's an incredible image, that the Son of God, the, the eternal Son of God, has so united himself with us that we are considered his body. That's not the only image in the New Testament of Jesus' intimate involvement with his church. The, the New Testament tells us that we were bought with his blood, that he has purchased our salvation with the most valuable thing that has ever existed. How much, you determine how much something is worth by how much somebody is willing to pay for it. The, the, the value of the church, the value of God's people is determined by how much God was willing to pay for it. And God was willing to pay for his church with the blood of the Son of God, the innocent, pure, righteous blood of the Son of God. I would suggest there's nothing in the universe more valuable than that. What could be considered more valuable than the life of God's only son? And so we see his love for the church in this. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, the church is described as the bride of Christ. Now, admittedly, this is, I think, for us men, a little bit odd to think of ourselves as the bride of Christ and him as the groom. However, this is an important image. It is an important image because it, it signifies the commitment to which Jesus has for his church, the commitment that, that he intends to see through, as we'll see through the book of Revelation, there is nothing he won't do for his bride. There is nothing he won't do to ensure that we will be united with him, an image that, is, that comes out very clearly in the picture of bride and groom. We will be united with him for all of eternity. This also means, and is a reminder to us of how much Jesus loves the church. We may not always love our bodies, and I'm not suggesting that Jesus doesn't love his bodies, but that image doesn't necessarily, our relationship with our physical bodies, once you get past like 25, is more negative than positive, right? 
And so you may not get the full image of Jesus' union with us as believers just from the body image. But when it comes to the bride and groom image, we understand something of Jesus' love for believers. Jesus' love for the church can, in terms of, of describing it in human terms, we must go to what ideally is the highest form of love between human beings when, male and, when man and woman come together in marriage to spend the rest of their lives loving one another. This is the picture that Revelation brings into the church as we are described as his bride. And so what this means is, I think one implication of this is that we cannot, we cannot love Jesus and refuse to love his bride. Far too many people today say things like, well, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. If, if you're married, well, if you're happily married, I should say, <laughs> imagine somebody coming up to you and saying, hey, man, you're really cool, I, I like you. Your wife, though, I can't stand her. <laughs> Imagine that. Like, there's, there, there's really no room in my mind for continuing in a relationship with somebody that says that. Somebody who says, hey, Fred, man, I really enjoy spending time with you, but next time we hang out, maybe leave Kim at home? Now, if anything, it's likely to be the other way around. People might say to Kim, hey, I really like you, but Fred gets on my nerves. But nonetheless, when Jesus, when Jesus refers to us, the church, as his bride, he's speaking of his love, he's speaking of his commitment, and he's speaking of his intimate involvement with us. That's the image of Jesus among the stars and the lampstands and Jesus holding tightly to the stars. He loves his church he cares for his church. He, Jesus didn't just wind up the clock of the church 2,000 years ago and walk away and say, let's see what happens. No, he's, he's here. He's invested. This is, this is his church. He loves his church. Imperfect as she may be, he loves his church. That's worth thinking about often. The fact that Jesus chooses us. He chooses you and I to be his representatives, to be the expression of his gospel and of his love in this world. It's incredible to think how much he loves his church. And so the first point was that Jesus is intimately involved in his church. Now let's talk specifically about the message to the Ephesian church. The next point on the handout is this. The Ephesian church is commended for their labor and faithfulness to the truth. Commended for their labor and faithfulness to the truth. I already said that the, most of these seven letters are gonna start with this commendation. This is what you're doing well. However, I hold this against you or I have this against you. And here's the commendation. I know your works, verse two, your labor and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not 
and you have found them to be liars. The first thing they're commended for is their hard work, their labor, their enduring labor for the gospel. The, the Ephesian church is one of the most prominent churches in the New Testament, and rightfully so. They have been faithful to the gospel. They have worked hard. Paul, when he came and the, the message of the gospel got to Ephesus before Paul, but the church was really formally established and, and, and grew under Paul's leadership. He spent much time in Ephesus. And as he did, he made sure to set an example for them of faithful labor. He even worked outside of the ministry so as not to be a burden upon them financially and to set an example for them, knowing that most of them would not be vocational ministers, same as true today in the church, but knowing that there's gospel faithfulness in just working hard and being a part of the church and, and supplying for the needs of the ministry of the church. And that's the example that Paul sets for us and for the Ephesian believers while he's there in Ephesus. But just as Paul determined to be a faithful supporter of gospel ministry in their city, so also did they work and labor for the sake of the church. They followed his example. They saw what Paul did. He worked hard and he preached the gospel and they would do the same. They would work hard and they would preach the gospel and they would labor in their city for the sake of the gospel. And they would endure in this. However, there was more to this commendation than their hard work. Because Paul, Paul also warned them that when he would leave, they would have to labor not just to teach the gospel, to preach the gospel, and to reach their city, but they would have to labor to preserve the truth of the gospel. We get a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 20. After spending a couple of years with the Ephesian church, Paul has moved on to do gospel work in other cities and on one of his journeys, he's going to come near Ephesus and he reaches out to the Ephesian church and he asks them to send the elders to meet him in another city. And he has this sit down with them and he lays his heart out before them. This is found in Acts chapter 20 where Paul addresses the Ephesian elders. I just wanna read verses 29 through 31, which says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Paul says, therefore, be on alert. Remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. Paul's Paul's laying his heart out there. He has labored for this church. He has labored for, for the establishment of a faithful gospel witness in the city of Ephesus. Three years he has given his life to them. Day and night, at times, warning them, even with tears. No doubt those tears came from, from word that he would receive from other churches of people being drawn away from the gospel by false teachers. And he warned them, don't let this happen to you. Notice he says that these men who will rise up from their midst 
will distort the truth. They will distort the truth. Often the most dangerous attacks against the church and against Christians isn't a complete replacement of truth because we can see that. Sometimes it's the subtle distortions. It's, it's the subtlety of someone who's among us, who seems to be one of us, who, who believes many of the same things and however distorts the truth of the gospel in order to draw people away into following them. Paul warns them. Don't let people like this, don't let people like this come in and, and, and destroy the flock, destroy what God is doing. He, he calls them savage wolves. Now it's hard at times to discern the difference between someone who is a savage wolf who has, who has bad intentions for the flock and somebody who's just ignorant or just learning or growing and, and maybe has misled themselves, but we must discern the difference. And when we see savage wolves, we must not tolerate them. We must not allow them to do damage to God's flock. This is Paul's warning. And so we see in Revelation chapter two, verse three, in the letter to that same church, Remember, this is just a couple of decades later. So Paul gathers the Ephesian elders. He warns them to stay faithful to the truth. And then they are commended in Revelation chapter two, verse three, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and you have not grown weary. Isn't that beautiful? That what the very thing that Paul warned them to be on guard against. They have faithfully guarded the gate. They have faithfully protected the church. They have not tolerated false teachers. They have not allowed false doctrine to take root among them. They have been a faithful witness to the gospel. Their labor and their faithfulness are commended by Jesus. Isn't that amazing? that Jesus finds that they have done this well. I don't know about you, but I find it hard at times to imagine Jesus telling me I've done something well. It's hard, isn't it? Isn't it hard to see? Like, like I, I, sure, every now and then I'll have a half a decent day, <laughs> but it's hard to imagine Jesus just being fully pleased with how they have labored on this front. And yet he is. He's pleased with their labor. However, that's not the whole picture of the Ephesian church. You see the next thing on your handout. It says, however, they had lost the love they had at first. Though they've been faithful in many ways, there's room for improvement. Though they've been faithful in guarding the truth of the gospel, though they've been faithful to protect the flock from the savage wolves that Paul promised would come in after his departure, they had lost the love they had at first. Verse four says, but I have this against you. You abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. It's an interesting, 
It's an interesting rebuke. The love they had at first. Love for what? Love for each other? Love for the unbelievers in their city? Love for Jesus himself? Yes, <laughs> probably all of that. Probably to some degree, all of that. Their love, their love which had once propelled them and has has caused them to endure and to, to, to protect the veracity of the message of the gospel, their love has grown cold. All of us know what it's like, most of us, I think, know what it's like to, to be in a state of really, really ecstatic love for another person. And, to, and then over time to experience the waning of those feelings as, as reality sets in, we might say, and as we just go on doing life together. I don't want to get myself into too much trouble here. I'm trying to be careful with my words. I'm hoping you know what I mean. <laughs> um, when, you, when, when romantic love blossoms between two people, it's usually way up here. It's like, man, everything they do is amazing. And time goes on and everything they do isn't amazing. And that's okay. Love matures through that changing of seasons. And you often see when, when people, when, when people are misled into thinking that love should always be this way up here. Everything they do is amazing. And then they say things like, well, we've fallen out of love with each other. And unfortunately, sometimes we make the decision to move on and to seek that love that is up here again. And that can be an endless cycle. And eventually we, we, we have to figure out how to love when things come back down to a day-to-day -day realistic level. So it is with the Ephesian believers. They once were totally in love with doing the work that Jesus had given them to do. Notice that their love for the truth did not grow cold. They are still enduring and protecting the truth that has been given to them in the gospel. It's their love for those other things. Again, we can't say for sure, is he referring to their love for other people or for each other or for Jesus or for all of these things? Probably all of these things. Otherwise, I think he would have specified. And so it's probably safe to say they've, they've just grown unloving. In Acts chapter 19, when Paul comes in and the church at Ephesus is growing and blossoming and in those early stages, let's say, of of ecstatic love, their city is being so radically changed by the gospel that it actually creates problems. In, in Ephesus, there was, uh, the economy was based largely around the worship of false gods. And there was a lot of people that made money selling idols and statues, statues and, and uh, relics and things that were used in the worship of these false idols. Well, the gospel is so radically changing the city of Ephesus that people stop worshiping those false idols 
And the people who economically depended upon selling those things began to go, wait a minute, this is a pretty big problem for us. This is how we feed our children. This is how we live. And they got so upset about the gospel and its impact upon the economy of their city that they actually started a massive riot. A riot so big that the local government was concerned the Roman Empire was going, because the Roman Empire does not tolerate rioting. They were so concerned that the Roman Empire was going to come in and, and take over the city because they have not governed well that they, that they pleaded with the Christians to stop causing such trouble. Imagine the gospel having such an impact on your city that it impacts the economy. This is, this is the city of Ephesus. There was great revival breaking out among this city. People were coming to Jesus. They were believing in the gospel. And that, that was the result of the love that the Ephesian church had for the gospel, for, for the lost in their city, for each other. It was, it was being noticed by everyone, which forces us to ask the question, well, what about us? I mean, does our city even know we're here? And if they do, what do they think of us? And, and more importantly, because it's not like the people in Ephesus necessarily thought well of the church there. Some of them were very upset about the presence of the church, but what difference are we making in our city? One of the challenges of this letter, this letter to the church in Ephesus that we should embrace is have we replaced love with truth? And let me unpack that a little bit because it's an important thing to consider. It was their love that led to such a great impact for the gospel just a couple of decades earlier. However, that, that impact is waning because they have so focused on truth at the exclusion of love, love for Jesus, love for the gospel, love for each other, love for their city. They have, they have, they have perfected, if you will, their doctrine, but their doctrine has ceased to motivate them to love. Now, you don't wanna have to pick one or the other. And there's no reason you ever should have to pick one or the other. But the, the, the point here is that truth is not a very good replacement for love. At the same time, neither is love an acceptable replacement for truth. We must be people who passionately hold on to both. May our truth inspire our love and may our love exemplify and be faithful to the truth that we hold to. This is an important concept today. I think we live in a culture that sort of has, this, the, has the opposite problem of the Ephesian church. We, we live in a culture that has exalted love above truth, which really you can't do if it's true love, then then it will be rooted in the truth. But we live, in a, we live in a culture that says truth is secondary, love is primary, and that is at least as bad, if not worse, 
than having it the other way around like the Ephesian church did. They said, truth is all that matters, but they had forgotten love. And Jesus says, how about we do both? How about we, we passionately hold on to the truth and by that are motivated to love? How about our love is informed by what is true? How about our, our, our mode of loving is dictated by what is true? And that is an important concept for the church today. Perhaps at times, because we so love the truth, we, we get caught up in what is defending the truth, let's say. There was no shortage in Ephesus of those who were willing to defend the truth. But at times, they got so caught up in defending the truth that they left behind love. And Jesus so perfectly embodies both. And that's what he wants his church to do. Jesus never compromised truth. He always called sin, sin. He, he, he never let his love for somebody compromise his conviction of what was true. However, he never let his conviction of what was true not motivate him to love. He so perfectly does both. And I think... That's what we need to do as the church today. We cannot grow weary in holding to what is true. Amen. And we must not grow weary in loving the world in which we are here to be a light. Amen. The Ephesian church had lost the love they had at first. Therefore, the next thing you see on the handout, they are commanded to repent. They're commanded to repent. This church, which is apparently so doctrinally sound and so full of good teaching, is commanded by Jesus to repent. Verse five, we're gonna pick up, my slides are gonna be a little bit messed up here. Um, but the beginning of verse five says, remember then how far you have fallen. And then it says, what will be on the next slide? Repent. And do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The message is repent and do the works you did at first. Go back to loving your city. Go back to loving each other. Go back to loving Jesus. Don't, don't be content with, with your labor for the truth but add to it, like you used to, your labor for love. This is, this is no mild rebuke. This is not just, hey, you're doing really good, but if you want to do a little bit better, you can do this. Jesus commands them to repent, to turn. They, they must, there's an urgency to, to what is said here. They must do the works that they did at first. Otherwise, Jesus says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Jesus' love for his church, his intimate involvement in the church does not guarantee the continuing existence of any local body of believers in fact, it does the opposite because Jesus so loves his church. He's not afraid to close a church down. 
In fact, sometimes the best thing that can happen is for a church to close down because they've stopped doing what he commanded. I remember a few months, now nah, this was, I don't know, this was a while ago, time, I don't know. Um, somebody, there was a, church, a local church that was closing and I think the Trib did an article and um, they posted out, you know, it's a sad day, this, this church is closing its doors and all that. And, and I totally missed the impact that that was having on, on people. I, was, I, was, I just wasn't aware, I, I wasn't thinking. And, and I posted something that was meant to be an encouragement. I, was, I posted something that said something to the tune of like, yeah, but there's a lot of great new churches that are springing up in the area too. And, and I, I think I named a couple of them because not just redemption, there are other churches that are springing up in the area. God's still faithful is what I meant. Um, but I, I, again, like I said, I totally overlooked the fact that people were grieving because a church that had meant something to them had come to an end. And that is a sad thing. Uh, and, and I got jumped on by a couple of people as often happens. And I was like, oh man, this is not at all what I, what I meant. And I tried to backpedal and I tried to make amends with the people that that offended. But we've gotta, we've gotta be uh, not, not disregarding. I mean, listen, there'll, there'll be a day when Redemption Church closes, probably, unless Jesus returns first. Churches have a life cycle. And there, when a church ceases to be what, Je, when, what Jesus intended for his church to be, the best thing that can happen is for that church to close. It is detrimental to the spread of the gospel and the health of God's church for churches to continue to exist long after they have ceased being faithful to the gospel. That doesn't mean they don't still do good things occasionally. It doesn't mean there aren't a lot of good people that still call that church their home. But God has a very specific plan for his church. It's, this is what I was trying to say earlier. It's not just whatever we want it to be. It's not just a, a social club that raises a little bit of money for this or that in the community. It's not just a place where people can go and connect with the past. Or this is the living church of the living Savior. And we have a specific job and an important mission that we are to be about. And if we're not doing that, we need to repent. That is the message to the Ephesian church. They hadn't lost the truth of the gospel. They just lost the love that was going to take the truth of that gospel into their city. How would you grade us then? I think, I think we love the truth here. I think that we hold firmly to the truth of Scripture on many places where our culture is pushing in another direction. Okay? But do we love? Do we love our community? Do we love this city? Do they know we're here? Are, they, is there, are their lives being impacted by our love? Does what we do for you know, an hour to an hour and a half here on Sunday morning make a difference outside of here the rest of the week. This is what Jesus is calling the Ephesian church back to. 
Go back to the, the works you did at first. Lastly, the last thing you'll see on the handout is that a faithful response to this message is crucial to entering into the blissful paradise that Jesus is preparing for his church. That's a mouthful, I know, but just try to get the blanks in. A faithful response to this message is crucial for entering into the blissful paradise that Jesus is preparing for his church. This is how Jesus ends his message to the church at Ephesus, verse seven. He says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you see how a faithful response to this message is tied to the experience of this paradise, which, God's, which, which is so often spoken of in God's word. And then we're even, we're even taken the whole way back to the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, which, which God established in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve to eat from so that they could live forever in his presence, which they were later cut off from because of sin. Jesus is bringing us back to the tree of life. This is one of the themes of Revelation that he is restoring Eden, but this time a better Eden, an enduring Eden. The opportunity to live in blissful paradise with God forever. But it requires a response to this message. It requires that they, specifically the Ephesian church, and perhaps us by extension, if we find ourselves guilty of the same thing, that we repent and do the works we did at first. Jesus is intimately involved in his church. So much so that he approaches a church that in many ways is being faithful to the gospel. And yet he warns them, I see your faithfulness. However, you forgot love. You have forgotten what you did at first and I'm calling you to come back. I'm calling you to do the kinds of things that changed this city. The kinds of things that people, that people from far distances away heard about and said, did you hear what the gospel is accomplishing in Ephesus? Come back to this faithful work of love. Love of the Lord, love of each other, and love of the people who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for this reminder that truth without love although it's still truth, is empty of its power to change the world. However, truth with love, that's a force that can change cities. That's a force that can reroute economies. That's a force that will get people's attention. May we be a church that loves truth that loves people, that loves the mission that you have given us. 
May we be a church that changes our city alongside of our brothers and sisters and other faithful gospel preaching churches in this area. May we be the light and the witness that that you designed us to be. And Father, may we love you. May we love our Savior, Jesus. May May we love you when no one else is watching, may we, may we just fall totally and madly in love with you. Jesus, thank you for coming and taking our place on the cross that we could live in relationship with you now and one day live in this blissful paradise which is dominated by the presence of God which will last forever where there'll be no more tears, no more weeping, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more death, no more sickness, no more disease. It'll be you and us in in an even better Eden forever. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us this gift which we can do nothing to earn. May we repent and do the works we did at first. In your name we pray, amen.